Welcome to this week's episode of Load In, Load Out, a tour story podcast produced in Athens, Georgia, in association with Kindercore Industries. This week, Cash Carter sits down with legendary rock photographer Bob Gruen, who shares some amazing anecdotes about the artists who populate his iconic images. Topics include, but are not limited to, trading boots with the Sex Pistols, drinking breakfast with the Allman Brothers, and sneaking Stevie Wonder onto Elton John's plane. This episode even includes an appearance from the Yakuza. So without further ado, and with limited commercial interruption, the great Bob Groon. Why don't you give us a little bit of background? Uh, well, I'm a rock and roll photographer from New York. I'm down here in uh, Athens. Uh, I had an event last night. We showed a screening of my film, uh, the Don Letts film, uh, Rock and Roll Exposed, uh, all about my career, uh, featuring Iggy Pop, Debbie Harry, Yoko Ono, uh, Alice Cooper, great film. Uh, and we had a good uh, talk after that. Yeah, it was great. And uh, I'm kind of stuck here because it's snowing in New York, but yeah. it's nice to be in Athens with the sun shining and uh, not in a snowstorm. Yeah, had some good food a little bit earlier. Getting my fix of southern food, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just had my fried pork chop. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these bands you actually ended up touring with, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've taken pictures of rock and roll bands for, uh, well, since 1970, when I started with uh, Ike Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm most well-known for taking a picture of John Lennon with the New York T-shirt. Right. Uh, but I've worked with everybody from Muddy Waters to Rolling Stones, from, you know, uh, was it uh, Sex Pistols to Green Day? And the Clash. Uh, you know, The Clash, a lot of pictures uh, of The Clash. I have a book of my pictures of The Clash. There's a book of my pictures of uh, New York Dolls. Um there's a book of your pictures with John uh, Lennon, too, right? There's a book I put out of all my pictures of John Lennon called John Lennon in the New York Years. I mm-hmm. worked with him the whole time he was in New York City from 1972 to the time he passed away in 1980. Uh, I put out a book of all my 40 years' worth of pictures of Yoko Ono uh, called See Here, Yoko. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's out now. It's a good, a really beautiful book. And uh, my big tome, the monograph, is called Rock Scene, and mm-hmm. there's over 500 of my pictures in the... It's a beautiful book. I mean, like, just as a book in general, like the cover. Well, it the, looks great. It's yeah. got the, you know, kind of chrome letters on the mm-hmm. front over it's a great. picture of the Clash. Yeah. Uh, it's very exciting from front to back. Um, it's very rare for any photo book to go into even second printing. Uh, my book is in fourth printing yeah. right now. Uh, and it just keeps selling because people like it. Oh, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was looking at it last night. It's definitely mm-hmm. a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, but as I was talking to Elizabeth last night, like we were, he, I was told to one of the great stories is that you were touring with the Sex Pistols. Oh yeah, correct? I ended up on the bus across America with Sex Pistols. Right, and she told me to ask you about the boots. Oh yeah, I didn't mention that last night, did I? Uh, well, uh, I met Malcolm. I was working a lot with the New York Dolls, mm-hmm. and uh, towards the end of their career, as the band was almost about to break up, Malcolm McLaren showed up with a whole bunch of clothes he had made for them, and uh, he kind of helped them uh, get 
back together a little bit long enough to wear his clothes and uh, and he had wanted to manage them but they were really falling apart mm -hmm. so he went back to England uh, with the idea of putting together a band uh, similar to that uh, and in fact he was going to bring Sylvain Sylvain from the Dolls over to England to be the lead singer of his new band uh, I was a little instrumental in <laughs> messing that up because I helped David and Syl get a job they had no money whatsoever and I knew this promoter in Japan. I helped him get a job in Japan and Malcolm got tired of waiting for Sill to come to England so he got this other guy, this Johnny Rotten to be the head of the band. Right. So uh, the first time I ever went to England uh, about a year later in 76, one of the, I only knew two people. It was the editor of the Melody Maker magazine who was a kind of conservative guy and I knew Malcolm and um, by that time the scene in England had just been starting to be developed. Uh, the, under, the punk scene uh, it was pretty much confined to one little nightclub where they all would hang out and Malcolm took me to this club Louise and I met uh, Sex Pistols and The Clash and Susie and the Banshees and Billy Idol and I remember Marco Peroni um, standing there and looking at these other people and saying oh I wish I had a band and a year later I came back he was in Gen X with Billy and uh, I think Elvis Costello was there it was just this nucleus of what became the punk scene it was all in this little club so uh, I did some photo sessions then. I came back a year later when Sid was in the band and uh, spent a little time with them. Uh, I went to Radio Luxembourg, an interview with them, spent a day with them, uh, and then came back to New York. And then they came to New York in January of 78, and uh, they were supposed to play at Saturday Night Live. And I figured I would take some pictures of them in New York and wave goodbye, and they'd have, you know, a trip across America. But I couldn't afford to go and didn't really need to go. You know, uh, I didn't really think the band was going anywhere. They weren't very good. They weren't getting, you know, in America. You know, in England, they were, like, considered outrageous, and uh, it wasn't about the music. It was about the outrage. And... Um, I didn't really think that would last all that long. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't planning on, you know, going on a tour with them. But then they, uh, I think between Steve and Sid, they had some visa problems and they didn't, uh, they, it delayed their trip to America. So instead of playing in New York, they went straight to Atlanta. And I figured I had to go down for a day just to keep the continuity, you know, get some pictures of the band in America. So I went just wearing the clothes I had in my camera bag because I was coming back in the morning. And then after the show, I was saying goodbye. They were getting on the bus, and I was saying, well, so long, Malcolm. You know, I'm sure you're going to have a great trip, have a lot of fun in America. Too bad I can't come along, but, you know, I'll see you later. And he said, yeah, you can't come, Bob, because there's only 12 allowed on the bus, and there's the band and Sophie and me and the guards. And, well, that's only 11, Bob. Why don't you get on? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I remember the guy next to me said, I'll come, Malcolm. And then he said, sorry, Bob asked first. And I was like, when was that? <laughs> you know? And uh, so I got on the bus. Uh, and I was there for, you know, 10 days to all the way to San Francisco through Texas and Oklahoma and all the stops they made. Uh, and somewhere along the way, see, I had these boots that were um, kind of engineer boots with a steel toe. And uh, Johnny Thunders was wearing the same boots. And, in fact, he was wearing them because it, when he was in England he had, and I was coming over, he'd asked me to bring him a pair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had brought him a pair. Um, and Sid Vicious really liked those boots. They were like American, solid made, and I don't remember the name. They started with an H, uh, the brand, but uh, they were good, solid American made engineer boots, you know, with the steel toe. They weren't the and, Herman Survivors, uh, were they? I'm not sure the name. I, I should those look it up. Those were old boots from about that time. But, you know, pretty standard American engineer boot. And, um, and, but anyway, Sid really liked them because Johnny had them, and I was wearing them. So, um, 
one night on the bus or one afternoon on the bus I, I kind of took my boots off to lay out on the couch on the front instead of going back into a bed I was like laying on the couch and fell asleep for a while and when I woke up Sid was wearing my boots and his <laughs> boots were sitting there and they were this English paratrooper boots with a big wide bottom now um a funny part about the boots is that at one point when I was in England, I tried to stand on the front of one of the boots on the steel tip to get just an inch and a half higher, to get a little bit higher over a crowd, to get a picture of a band. And it had bent the metal a little bit. And I tried to have a shoemaker bang it back, but it was a heavy steel and there was no way to get into the boot to bend it back. And every time I had to walk a certain way because if you didn't walk, walk just right, the metal would kind of cut into your toe a little and it was, you know, <laughs> awkward and... I really didn't like them all that much, and so Sid started wearing them, and he gave me his paratrooper boots, and I put them on, and they were, like, super comfortable. And I remember swinging off the bus and jumping down onto the ground, and because they're, they're paratrooper boots, they were made with a wide sole and that was kind of cushioned, and it just was soft and comfortable and uh, protective, and so I really liked the boots. Um, and so Sid was wearing mine, and what was re really nice about... Oh, and then I heard the story later that while I was asleep and another guy and Johnny were sitting uh, across from me on the front of the bus, Sid was looking at my boots and tried them on, and then he took his knife out and held it to my throat while I was sleeping and uh, turned to them and said, if I kill him, I can keep his boots. <laughs> and uh, the part of the story I don't like is that they didn't say anything. <laughs> they watched just to see what would happen. You know? Now, I'm here today, so luckily he didn't cut my throat. Um, but when I woke up, he was wearing my boots, and... Uh, and as I say, I was much more comfortable in his boots. And over the next couple of days, each one of the other three Sex Pistols, Paul and Steve and uh, Johnny even, uh, came up to me and said that they liked having me on the bus and he, they liked having me with them to take pictures and that, you know, there was no way that Sid had control over whether or not I was on the bus. And if I wanted my boots back, I should just tell him, give me my boots back. But that, you know, wouldn't keep me... You know, if I wanted my boots back, just take them back. And that wouldn't, you know, cause any rift that would get me thrown off the bus or anything. Uh, which was really nice to hear them say to me that, right, you know, yeah. that they wanted me there. Uh, but in fact, I really didn't want my boots no. back. And I was happy to be wearing Sid's boots. And then on the last day of the tour um, in San Francisco, they wanted to go to a store that had American motorcycle leather jackets. And so they took them there. And in the store, I saw the exact same kind of boots. And I said, I showed him to Sid. I said, look, Sid, here's those kind of boots. Why don't you get a pair that's in your size and you break them in for your feet and they're your boots, you know? And he said, no, no, I'm going to keep your boots because they're already broken in. And I thought, broken in? They're actually broken, you know? <laughs> but, but he said, I'm going to keep your boots, but I'm going to buy you a new pair. So he bought me a brand new pair of them, and I kept his paratrooper boots. Wow. And uh, so if you ever see Sid Vicious's boots uh, from his American tour on eBay, you'll know that I'm broke. Because <laughs> <laughs> I still got them stashed away. Uh, very comfortable boots. Yeah, it sounds like you got the better end of that deal, for Yeah, sure. I think so. Because like you so. said, like you didn't have to worry about the toe digging in. The and the funny thing about it is that uh, one of the roadies, uh, I think th that day or the next day, took Sid to his house. And he had a pair of boots similar, but almost knee high, that um, Sid that he gave to Sid, and that Sid I think wore for the the rest of the year, uh, because I actually saw my boots online in England in a castle of criminality. 
there's a museum in England. Uh, I think you can still find it online. It's, it's, it was, I don't know if it's called Castle of Criminality or Museum of Criminality, but, you know, they consider Sid to be a murderer, even though he was never convicted of right. uh, killing Nancy. They never did find out who did it. Um, but anyway, they have this exhibit of Sid Vicious's boots and his necklace. And the and boots are boots. my boots. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So that was a really weird, you know, to find my boots online there. Like, yeah, there they are. <laughs> wow. Um, so some of the other bands that you actually ended up touring with, who were some of the other ones that you ended up touring with? Oh, um... Uh, well, I went on on two bus trips across America with the Clash. Okay, uh, that was something I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, and worked out that uh, you know I got to be friends with the band, and, and uh, they let me come along on those trips, and that was great. Hanging out with the Clash was uh, a really, really, really good time. They were good people. Uh, you know, a lot of people say the Clash is the only band that really mattered, right? Because uh, they were saying something. Uh, I think some bands today are saying something as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, for the last 18 years, I've been a fan of Green Day because mm-hmm. uh, I think they carry on the tradition not of only of the music, but also of making a statement and having something to say and uh, you know, inspiring people. And yeah, you know. it's especially important today uh, that we, we we keep that tradition of rock and roll up mm. with everything going on in the world right now. I should mention that uh, early on in my career, I came uh, I, on assignment for Cream Magazine, I think in 72 or 73, early on in the 70s, uh, they sent me down to Macon, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was down here. I never did get to Athens, but I spent a few days in Macon, Georgia. Uh, I was fascinated with the culture and, this, and place, and they took me to the recording studios, and I met you know the Allman Brothers and... Uh, you know the history of Macon, and then spent a couple of days on the road with the Allman Brothers, uh, which was uh, very you? much like that movie. You know that they based the um, Almost Famous, right? Uh, and they had a motel pool party kind right. of thing. I was at one of them. You're that at that, one that of those. was based the on Golden True God Life. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't jump off the motel room, but there was a motel full of drunken, happy people with naked women running around, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was straight out of that movie. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you've got one of the few pictures of all the Allman Brothers together, correct? Yeah, they didn't like to pose for pictures. Right. They were not a posing band. In fact, they were opposed to posing. <laughs> right. Um, but I know several uh, bands like that. Like, I, you do not like taking band pictures at yeah all. they just wouldn't do it but uh, i kind of corralled them one day because <clears throat> when i first met them actually i i first saw them when they played at the fillmore mm-hmm. and i do have a picture of um Dwayne and greg together uh in the hotel room before we went to the gig uh but by the time i saw i, I met them uh, Dwayne had already passed away and uh it was right after the making trip i went on uh that night with the Owen brothers, and I kind of showed up. Uh, we, I think uh, we had gone to see Bobby Womack in Macon, so we had missed the first plane, and we got there a little later. We went right to the show, and it was this chaotic, you know, drunken affair back then. It was They were amazing. I mean, the power and the energy of their music, combined with the power and energy of Quaaludes and alcohol <laughs> <laughs> and young people, uh, and then this motel craze all night with people running around jumping in and out of the pool and um and so i remember the next morning i was supposed to go on the bus with them and coming out of my hotel room i didn't want to miss the bus so i was sleeping by the pool for a while until the band started coming out and getting on the bus and i got on the bus there the road manager knew i was coming and it was all arranged and the bus pulled away from the motel and starts driving down the road for a little ways and all of a sudden the band is kind of like well you know and then it was just the band they left all the chaos behind at the motel and they kind of look around like, who's the fuzzy hair guy over there on the <laughs> bus? You know, and they came over to me and uh, 
to introduce myself, I wanted to show him some of my pictures. And I always used to carry a box of 8 by 10 pictures of all my recent work and some of my, you know, better pictures to show people. Uh, kind of like th- what you can do with your phone nowadays. Right, right. But in the old days, you actually had to carry a box with, you know, prints and photos in the box, uh, 8 by 10 photos. And... Um, and so I opened my camera bag to get out my box, and of course, right on top of the camera bag was other parts of my equipment, not just the cameras and the flashes and the film, but there was a bottle of uh, Cuervo tequila right on top, and I took that out, and we started passing the tequila around, and I started showing them pictures and everything, and after we finished the tequila, between five or six of us, it was, it was like six in the band at the time, of me. so anyway, we drank up the tequila for breakfast, and then I took out the bottle of Remy Martin, um, but before we started that, because we were drinking some beers with the tequila, uh, and they just had the bus pull over for a piss stop and everybody went down the hill to take a piss and as they were coming back up I took a couple pictures and they said hey guys just stand by the bus here for a minute and everybody's in such a good mood that they stood there and that's when I got the group shot of, uh, of the Allman Brothers and then we got back on the bus finished the Remy and by the time we got where we were going uh, we were all friends <laughs> and there's something to be said about just being uh, it was something you said last night and, and several people said about you is just being up for whatever and not mm. trying to hound these people just just being cool when you are like that you end up getting in situations that you might not get into if you are more pushy or more mm. you know um uh, i have a lot of patience yeah and uh you know if you get on a bus and spend two or three weeks doing that uh, and nobody was paying me for that I, I was getting paid eventually by you know, <coughs> licensing my pictures to magazines and so on but um, you know you, I wasn't like hired by the band or anything like that um, but when you spend time like that you get more time to just take those kind of intimate pictures and people uh, and working with people uh, over and over again um, you gain their trust right um, and I was never the kind of photographer who wanted to catch a guy with the wrong woman and make a bunch of money the right, next right, morning right. by embarrassing somebody. Uh, I've always had empathy for people, and I wouldn't want somebody to do that for me. Right, exactly. So I don't like to do it to other people. And uh, even more than that, uh, you don't make a lot of money taking photos, and especially if you only get to take pictures once. Uh, you make money working with people over and over again. So I always wanted people to like my pictures and to like me and to hire me again and again. And so I built up this trust with a number of different, you know, bands that I worked with uh, by not exposing them and wanting to, you know, to help them look good. And plus, you know, when you're on the road, like we say on this podcast uh, quite often is you, 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 people think that it's party, party, party all the time. Mm. And it's like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll all the time. Most of touring is just kind of sitting there and driving from one place to the other. And if you're with yeah. people during those times you start to actually get to know them as people. There's a lot of late-night talking and yep. conversations about, you know, you end up finding out what some guy thought of his third-grade teacher. I mean, you know, right. everything, like, by 5 in the morning, you're getting talked out. Right. Uh, but, yeah, you really get to know people. Uh, I remember spending a lot of time with Sid on the Sex Pistols bus, uh, you know, talking about his life and his love for Nancy and... Um, and there is a lot of downtime. Uh, there's like an hour and a half on stage when everything's rocking and rolling. And that means there's, you know, what, 22 and a half hours when you're not on stage and you're yeah. traveling and going to the next place and you're not sleeping well because you're on a bus. Right. And, um, and then you're in a dressing room and then it, often it's cold or damp. And then finally there's the show and everybody's excited for an hour and a half. And then there's another 22 and a half hours or an extra day, you know, waiting to get to the next place. And, yeah, there's a lot of boring time. 
time. Uh, I remember Johnny Thunders uh, was a lot of times when I was, saw Johnny, he would ask me, "Have you read this book? Have you read that book?" And I was like, "Johnny, when do I get to read? Like, how, <laughs> how, what, how, when do you read books? Like, you know, you don't you look at Johnny Thunders, you don't think of him as a a, a book kind of guy." Uh, but he said, "Oh man, I'm sitting on the bus and in a hotel rooms all day with nothing to do, and he reads books." Yeah. A lot. That's why a lot, um, of a lot of musicians like to watch the TV. I mean, certain musicians will walk into a hotel room carrying their bag and they'll turn on the TV first because in those days it was a little dodgy because if the TV didn't work, they weren't in the right room. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and no point in putting the bag down unless you know if the TV works. <laughs> you know? uh, me, I often don't turn the TV on at all Right. Um, because uh, I like to go out and do things. I like to see things in real life. I don't like to hear about them. Or vicariously watching on TV, or the way people nowadays, you know, the TV is the computer, right. and people just sit and stare at them. Um, that's why I ended up on tour with a, a bunch of different bands because um, I like to go places. I yeah. like to be there. You know? It's funny what you said about reading. Is as uh, some of the most well-read people I know are touring musicians because there's not a whole lot to do. Right. right. I think it's, it's why a lot of like you know? artists and musicians and things like that, people who are in that kind of profession, end up being really knowledgeable about not only the world because they're traveling around the world but everything like like there were people mm. like like you know in your movie um uh this is, you 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 hear from uh so, some of the musicians on there and you start to when you see these documentaries how well versed they are how mm. well spoken they are because they're reading a bunch of books on the road because right. like you said you've got 22 <laughs> hours to do nothing during right. the day Right, nowadays, a lot of the tour buses have you know video machines, but even there, they're watching documentaries uh, and learning things all yeah. the time. Uh, I went on a couple of tours with Alice Cooper. Um, certainly, there's a famous picture I took of Led Zeppelin in front of their airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a nice way to travel. Were you? Um, did you tour with them in that airplane? Uh, that day, I didn't really tour with Led Zeppelin. Uh, on that day, I think we went to Pittsburgh or Cleveland. I don't know. Uh, there anyway. wasn't an instance like from... Almost famous, where the plane almost wrecked and everyone. Not when I was on it. No, <laughs> uh, there were those kind of planes. I mean, the, the the one that Led Zeppelin had was called the Starship, and uh, they didn't actually own it. People think that their name was on it. It was their plane. Certainly, the way they're standing in the picture, it looks like it's their plane. Uh, that's inspired a lot of people who went into rock and roll because they wanted to get their own plane. Right. Uh, that plane was actually a rental. Uh, you rented it for a month. There's no point in buying a plane when you're only going to fly around for a month anyway. Um, and everybody, yeah, they painted Elton John on it for a month. They painted Rolling Stones on it for a month. They painted Alice Cooper for a month when he had it. Um, so, uh, but it was a really nice plane. Uh, I mean, talk about touring. You Where know, were the uh, planets now? I think in uh, somewhere in the uh, Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> Some... Uh, Somebody over there bought it eventually, uh, but it was quite nice. It had uh, like you know four or five rows of first class kind of seats in the front, but then a big open lounge area in the middle with a long brass bar that had a piano organ built into it, and uh, lounge you know banquet kind of seats are all around the sides, and then in the back there were two bedrooms. Uh, and the larger bedroom actually had an electric fireplace in it, uh, which you don't often see on a plane. But there's no fire, but it looked like a fireplace, you know. Um, it's just a funny and, thought uh, of a fireplace and, in a plane. And that was a nice plane. <laughs> the one time when Elton John had the plane, um, they snuck Stevie Wonder on before Elton got there. And they put him in one of the bedrooms in the back hiding. And Elton came on, and he was sitting in the front. And he was actually a little hungover and not in a great mood. And after the plane took off, it was only a short flight to Boston, uh, and the publicist came over and said, like, you got to come back, and uh, the 
the airplane company hired a piano player and he's playing at the bar and you got to just come back and say hello and Elton's like no I don't I got to sleep I got a show coming up you know leave me alone and the publicist wouldn't leave him alone said no you know you got to come back and see this piano player like the airline went and got him he said I don't care what the airline did I'm renting <laughs> the plane I'm not going and they finally convinced him to come back and he came walking back and Stevie Wonder was playing Crocodile Rock and then he got in a really good mood again. <laughs> you know? So that was fun. Um, you seem to speak very highly of your, your days with The Clash. Mm. Is there any great stories from whenever you were on the road with The Clash? I'm sure there are. Oh, uh, well, a lot of them, yeah. I mean, uh, when I first saw them, on my very first trip, I went to see them. I didn't really meet them. Um, but I saw them play a show that was just so powerful and so much energy uh, that I knew I wanted to see them again. And I came back a year later got in touch with the record company and they said oh the clash doesn't work with the record company they don't you know we can't we have no contact with them we can't really help you do anything and i said well i'm a fan i want to see them you know uh can you tell me where are they playing you know i'll just go there uh maybe i'll buy a ticket on the sidewalk or something uh but i'm gonna see them and they told me they were playing in glasgow so i f went up there in those days the air f short plane flights were a lot cheaper and hotels were a lot cheaper you could get around on a low budget so uh, I went to Glasgow, and um, and it's just my kind of luck that as I checked into the hotel, Mick Jones and Paul Simonon were at the desk asking about something, and Mick kind of recognized me from Club Louise a year earlier, and he said, oh, you that guy from New York? And I said, yeah, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I came to see your show. So he took me up to the road manager who hooked me up with photo pass and tickets, and that all worked out. Um, but I didn't really know where they were going. I wasn't really in contact with them because I remember after the show, uh, I heard about it the next day because after the show, I went back to my hotel and actually took a train to Edinburgh to see the, the band the next day. And I found out that after their show in Glasgow, they had gone out in the back and there was a bunch of fans they were talking to and cops came by and tried to clear the fans away and it got into a bit of a row and the band was trying to protect the fans and so Joe and Paul got arrested for disorderly conduct uh, against the police and the promoter was up all night trying to deal with getting them out of jail and getting them to Edinburgh the next day. So uh, they played that show and by the end of that show, I remember getting a little friendlier with enough with the road manager that I he drove me and another person to the next gig which was some seaside town um on the shore of England and we get to this place that was not a big kind of you know uh, standard motel you know uh but it was actually kind of a nice English inn uh that was an old building with a big uh, gardens like formal gardens off the side of the lobby uh, and nice furniture in the lobby and they took one look at this crew coming off this rock and roll bus and they were like <laughs> no way you're not staying here and the manager started trying to discuss it and i remember joe and mick kind of sitting down on a couch and kind of quietly playing some acoustic songs like they were just nice folk singers you know and uh, there was going to be no problems here sir uh and the road manager uh, kept trying to convince the uh, staff that nothing was going to you know they weren't going to have any problems they had been up you know you know kind of you know rough nights for the past few days they just wanted a place to sleep it was all going to be okay and so they let us stay and they played the show and we came back to the hotel and remember people had a few drinks and they closed up the bar and everybody went up to go to sleep and uh, suddenly uh, one of the band staff came over to wake me up to go and help out the promoter 
who I got to his room. He was in tears. He had broken down. He was crying. And what had happened was the other person that we, he'd given a ride to was this girl who had come along, and he had tried to make it with the girl, and she wasn't having it. She was just a fan of the band. She didn't want to you know, be didn't sleeping with him. Didn't care about the room, Yeah, I didn't want to <laughs> sleep with him. And he just, having you know, been up for days and the exhaustion and the stress, and then this girl turning him down, he flipped out, and he went down to the lobby, and he single-handedly wrecked the lobby, taking couches and throwing them through the glass doors into the, the garden. The road manager who swore nothing would happen. Swore <laughs> and the band was upstairs sleeping. The band didn't know anything about it. By the time they woke me up, I don't know why they thought I but I ended up with this guy's head in my lap, and I'm you know caressing him <laughs> like he's a six-year-old with a bad dream. <laughs> I'm like, why me? You know. So, yeah, there was some funny things that happened. <laughs> was there ever any time where you felt like genuinely in danger? Oh, yeah, often. <laughs> and, you know, in the chaos of the crowds, uh, there were times when things were dangerous. And I don't know, the first one that pops in my head was when I was helping out uh, David and Syl after the New York Dolls. Uh, they put together another little group with a couple of new musicians, Chris Robeson and uh, Bobby Blaine, and Tony Machine was playing drums, and uh, Peter Jordan was playing the bass. Uh, and we called them the Dollettes. Uh, and got a Winnebago and did a short tour around Ohio and uh, places out there. Uh, and I remember we were in Detroit, uh, where it's kind of Cobo Hall, it, you know, had hockey games and, you know, macho kind of sports events. And here was this, you know, rock and roll concert. And uh, and I had been drinking and I was like, part. I was at that point, since I was helping David and Syl, they had kind of appointed me as road manager to the extent that I had to show the driver the map and explain to him exactly where we were going. Uh, and after the gig, I you know, went down and collected the money for the band and did things like that. And I helped. So since I was, I, I made up the rider, I also put a bo- two bottles of Remy Martin cognac on the rider. That so you could have one for too. me. You know, <laughs> it was, it was one for the band, one for me. And uh, so I was feeling pretty good and down front taking some pictures with some uh, macho. So, uh, you know, guard at the place uh, took offense to my feeling so good and dragged me out of the uh, the club all the way to, you know, through the audience out to the back to the lobby and to this room where there was other macho guards. As he opened the door, I saw these other three, like, bull-sized, you know, guards inside, and it suddenly dawned on me that they were going to beat the crap out of me if I took one more step into that room and I pulled away the guy had me by the collar I pulled away from him and went running back towards the audience because our bus was on the other side of the audience out the back door and I just went terracing towards the bus and uh, and these guys two guys were like closing in on behind me like big guys you know coming to grab me and somebody I don't know who dove like a football tackle and hit one guy into the other guy, and they all went down in a tumble. And I just kept on going out to the back door. I never <laughs> know who it was who saved my life or why. Wow. But somebody just dove out and stopped them. And I got back to the bus and stayed there. <laughs> you know, and I'm here today to talk about it. Yeah, there's, there, there's, there's, you know, you always end up hearing stories about, and I have my own stories of touring about being in danger, like where it's like you're stuck in a situation, and all you can think is like, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. Like, I don't know if we're going to make it out of this situation alive. Well, that's what I felt when I walked in the door, when they pulled me in the door, and I saw these three guys, you know, and the guy behind me just waiting for something to do, you know, somebody to pummel. Uh, 
I was, yeah, really scared. I mean, that's the first one that pops in my head because that was terrifying. Uh, but there have been situations like that. Actually, when I went on the plane with Elton and Stevie Wonder and we get to Boston and I had been hired to take a picture of Elton and Stevie Wonder on the plane. So when they got together, I got my picture. I was done. And the bar had everything, and I didn't know if I should have cognac, which I like, or champagne, which is nice. And the bartender said, you can mix them together, and it's called something, uh, that, you know, it's a, a drink. <laughs> so I started drinking the champagne and cognac, and then when I got to the dressing room in uh, Boston Gardens, there was another bottle of cognac in there, so I was drinking that. So by the time I got out in front of the stage, I was feeling pretty loose. And I didn't have a photo pass or for a pass, because I came with the band on the plane. Like, right. you know, you, it's, it's kind of like... You just go with the group. But all of a sudden, I was out where people should have a pass, and some burly guard grabbed me and said, what the hell are you doing? He just thought I was some drunk fan who managed right. to get in the pit. Grabbed me, dragged me around the back, and literally had his had me against the wall, off my feet, holding me against the wall by my neck. And luckily, at that moment, John Eastman, who is Linda Eastman's brother, uh, who's a lawyer, who was on the plane, and I met him on the plane and had a chat with him, he came walking by, and I'm like waving, John, John, <laughs> gasping. Uh, and he pulled the guard off of me and saved me. It's a good time to have a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good lawyer. <laughs> Trip. Uh, and I should describe the Winnebago, by the way, that, that we had an, a driver called uh, Elwood. Uh, and if you see some of the New York Dolls products, there's a arm with a tattoo of the New York Dolls logo on it. That's Elwood's arm. He had okay, the cool. New York Dolls girl tattooed on his arm. Uh, he was our driver. He was kind of a wild, loopy guy. Uh, and he had been living in the Chelsea Hotel. And when we went on the road and picked him up with the Winnebago as we left New York, he left the Chelsea Hotel with his box of like third-rate porno magazines, like not Playboy or Penthouse, but like Big Boobs or Big Butts right. or Girl Next Door, you know, or Trailer Park Queen. <laughs> you know, like really raunchy girls, right. all naked. And we wallpapered the Winnebago because the Winnebago was all plastic and formica, so they literally wallpapered the Winnebago with all of this porn, this like cheap, <laughs> fat people porn. It was funny. So uh, anyway, we're driving that bus around. And we got to Akron, Ohio, I think it was, uh, where we actually met the Dead Boys. So they showed up for the first time. Wow, okay. Uh, but we get to this club, uh, I think it was called the Tomorrowland or something like that, in Akron. And uh, I went to the manager of the club as we got there and get the dressing room set up and so on. And I asked him where the cognac was. And he said, what's that? I said, well, it's on our rider. We get two bottles of cognac. And he goes, what's cognac? And I said, well, it's kind of like brandy. Do you have any? He said, we don't have cognac. He said, well, I said, well, it's kind of like brandy. Do you have any brandy? He goes, no, no, we don't have brandy. And he said, this is what we have. And he pointed to the bar. And I look at the bar, and it's, you know, your typical, you know, uh, rye, whiskey, vodka. And I saw the 151 rum. And I said, well, it's kind of like that 151. Why don't we take two bottles of that? <laughs> so uh, that kind of lit up the dressing room. Everybody was drinking that. I was drinking it. We were all drinking it. But when the night was over and we started going back to the bus, Elwood was like in no condition whatsoever to drive. He was staggering. Everybody was staggering. 
Uh, I was pretty drunk, but I don't usually look it. I can usually handle my demeanor when I'm drinking. Uh, and David said, Bob, you're the most sober one. You better drive. And I'm like, really, me drive? <laughs> but I wasn't about to put my life in anybody else's hands because they were more drunk than I was. Right. So I drove, I think it was like 60 miles or something, back to Detroit with one hand over my eye, you know, where if you close one eye, then, because when you're drunk and you're seeing double, if you close one eye, then there's only one white line that right. you have to follow. <laughs> <laughs> and I made it all the way back. That was a horrifying, uh, scared. I mean, talk about being scared. I was terrified because not only was I afraid of my life, but I had, you know, six or seven people in the bus with me. Uh, not a bus, it's kind of a van. Uh, but, you know, I was responsible for them. And, uh, you know, nowadays you think, well, why didn't you just sleep it off and wait till the morning? Well, we didn't. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> in those days, like you you're, in the, you're in the situation. You're in the situation, like, you make the best right. of it. You know, you just Hindsight go for is it. 2020, you know. Yeah, so anyway, I made it back to um, everything was all good, except in Boston when I was driving to Winnebago. Um, I think it was in Boston where we, uh, at one point, we, I dropped the band at the club. Uh, in what they call the combat zone was the big nightclub area in Boston back then and I dropped the van in front of this club then I went to the corner and went around the corner to, looking for a parking space and uh, I remember like ma- trying to make a U-turn so I, I made a one part of the U-turn and I start backing up and all of a sudden there's a car behind me and uh, years later in hindsight I think it was a, a setup because uh, anyway, I punched a hole in the door because the the Winnebago has a big metal bumper on it, a big square steel bumper, and this guy wedged in right behind me as I was backing up, and the bumper went right into his door and made this big square hole in the door of the car. Uh, and they start screaming and yelling, and I pull the van out of the car and pull it over, and uh, and these guys came out yelling at us and it was just me and Tony in the bus and these three macho guys yelling at us and looking at this hole in the car and and then later I remember that the trunk was tied shut with a string you know and one of the windows was broken it was like an old junker and I think they were out like doing this on purpose looking for accidents to try to threaten people people. and get money out of people and of course we didn't have any money and um, and luckily because they came back and, and one guy had like a tire iron or something and hit Tony and Tony came running back to the bus. I had gotten back on the bus to look for the papers or something. Tony came running back, Bob, Bob, get the gun. Because we didn't have a gun, but he was, like, trying to scare them right. off. And at that point, the band had been refused admission into the club by being so drunk or whatever. The they club that they were in. playing? Uh, no, no. Oh, no, okay. this was after where they were playing. We played at a Catholic girls' high school gym. That <laughs> <night>. <laughs> you know, after you know, when a band is on, they take any gig you can get. You know, and we actually did play this Catholic girls' high school uh, gymnasium, and uh, and then we went down to the combat zone to have some drinks because that kind of show is you know the Catholic school show is over early. Right. You know? And anyway, they wouldn't let the band in. Luckily for me, because they came around the corner following us, and Elwood used to carry this uh, attaché case, but it was made by Anvil that makes all the, mm-hmm. you know, traveling oh, yeah, yeah. cases for bands, and so it was a seriously heavy, you know, with steel corners, and he would use it as a weapon. He came running down the street, swinging his Anvil case over his head, and the band running behind him, yelling, and so the guys got, you know, calmed down, and they didn't beat us up, and uh, they whacked your friend I, I, with, I a, we, with a tire iron. Yeah, yeah, Tommy is he's uh he's got a hard head. Yeah. <laughs> he survived. But, but yeah, that was a scary night and then I think we parked the bus in a lot and um as I pulled out of the lot, I went over the curb cuz I didn't see where the cut was and it hit the bottom of the 
bus and apparently broke the tank for the toilet. And um, so we kind of leaked all the way back to <laughs> when I when I returned it. We had to pay a bunch of money extra for that. <laughs> uh, but that wasn't as bad as when I wasn't there with them in Ohio. Before I had flown home for a day for a job I had to do. And um, they were driving down a highway in Ohio and uh, had stopped. Oh, because somebody, oh, Elwood, had gone to clean the... Or do something to you know, fix the bathrooms, and it has pressure in it. There's, you have to put pressure in the tank to make the toilet work on right. Winnebago, and he had put it in the wrong place or something. So when somebody flushed the toilet, it was coming up inside, and uh, and they pulled over and they went to open a valve to let the pressure off, and basically squirted the whole tank of, you know, waste from the toilet across a four-lane highway. <laughs> uh, these cars are coming by and hitting this and it's spraying. And, of course, you know, within 30 seconds, a cop car pulled up and pulled over. Like, you know, what are you doing? And even back then, this was an environmental major, right. you know, thing you did wrong, covering a highway with crap, you know. And uh, it turned out, you know, some of these things happened, that the cop was like the drummer or a member of, I think, the band Ohio Express or one of those bands from the, from the 60s. Yeah. And after the band broke up, he became a cop. And he said, I've been on the road. I understand. I'm going to let you guys go. And he wow. let go. Yeah. I mean, it's weird how you, you – and, and that those kinds of things happen on the road all the time. Yeah. Weird coincidences. Oh, weird. I continue, yeah. Uh, oh, which one? The, oh, the dolls in Japan. Yeah, we had because <laughs> um, uh, I had arranged for them to uh, uh, my friend, the promoter, to see them and uh, and book them into Japan. So I went along on that trip, and uh, the trip was pretty good. And Felix uh, Papillardi and his girlfriend were there, his wife, and uh, and it mixed with a couple of Japanese bands, Joe Yamanaka, and uh, and it was all produced by Yuya Yuchida who was a big Japanese promoter uh, and so we were on this tour and we were having a great time and and the beginning of it when we were still in Tokyo Felix and his wife they were kind of into kinky things and they picked up this young girl in a nightclub and they had gotten pretty kinky with her apparently and you know they were laughing about it the next day in the airport and nobody thought much about it and then the last night when we were back in Tokyo uh, I was having a screening. I'd made some videotapes of them. They played a stadium in Tokyo because it was a big f- group. It wasn't just the dolls. I think, oh, yeah, Jeff Beck was on the tour as well and Felix from Mountain. And, um, and so they played a stadium. It was called the World Rock Festival. You, you wanted to bring the whole world into rock and roll. And um, and so I was showing videotapes that I'd made there. And we were all gathered in the lobby. It was a big gathering. And all of a sudden, these, like, heavy-duty gangster Yakuza-type guys came in and they started passing around this picture and they came over to me and they were showing me this picture of a, a high school graduating class of like three or four hundred tiny faces and they're pointing to one little face in the middle saying, do you know this girl? And I'm like, get out of here. Like, we're having a screening. What are you right. doing? You came in through the screening. And they went over and waited in the bar for a while. And then they came back uh, after the screening and the only two guys, Felix had curly hair Sylvain did and me and so apparently this guy's daughter was the one that Felix and his wife had been messing with and she hadn't come home since and the last guy she was with him when we got back to Tokyo the night before Syl had taken her in and he said that he just talked to her and kind of talked her down uh, didn't mess around with her because she was very young too young uh, he felt and uh, the next morning he had calmed her down enough that she went back home and then her dad found out what happened and he showed up looking for the curly hair guy so as they came in, Felix had an intuition, and he left 
<laughs> when they first got there, he was gone. And then they started yelling at Syl, and um, he was denying everything, saying it's a teenage fantasy. And uh, I, just, I tried to call the police, and the desk had cut off the phone. And then I had to threaten the desk clerk. I grabbed him by the shirt and pulled him over the counter. I started yelling at him. Because this is the accuser. Yeah, the accuser was threatening Syl. Right, so they just cut like, off the phone, cut off like everything. three or four of them, and they had cut the phone off. And I had this kid with me who was... Uh, had, his dad worked there, so he had, he spoke Japanese and English. He was an American kid, but spoke Japanese pretty fluently, and I had him as a translator. And he told me that the guy had taken a key out so that the phone wouldn't work. And I was telling the guy, like, you put that key back and call the police or whatever happens to him. And I pointed to Sylvain and said, whatever happens to him is going to happen to you. You know, like, don't just be afraid of the Yakuza. You're going to be afraid of me. And I was, like, way macho because I was scared for my life. Right, right. You know, and uh, and really threatening this guy. And then finally he calls the police and gives me the phone, and I gave the phone to the kid, and I said, say the name of the hotel first and then tell him we're in trouble. But first say the name of where we are. And so he did that, and this Yakuza guy came over next to us, and he saw what the kid was doing, so he pulled the phone away. So I pulled the phone back, and I'm back and forth with this phone. And well, I thought, well, if you're going to kill me, I'm going to at least hurt you first. Right. You know? And I'm not a fighter, but I wasn't going down, you know, just by surrendering, you know. Uh, and at that point, the road manager had this girlfriend who was way older than us. She was like 25 years older than us or 20 years older than us. She was like 50, and we were in our 20s, uh, early 30s, I guess. I was 30. They were 25. And uh, anyway, Luli was there. She was about 48 or something. So she had remembered that a block away was the English embassy and that there were cops out in front of the embassy. So she ran hysterically. This is a little white-haired woman who lives in Vermont. She ran up the street in Japan, grabbed the cop by his arm, and started dragging him down the street, <laughs> you know, just saying, trouble, trouble, help, help, you know, and dragged him into the hotel. So just as I'm fighting with the Yakuza over the phone, Luli drags this cop in, and he had a little microphone on his chest, uh, you know, walkie-talkie, the cop walkie-talkie. So I'm pointing to the microphone saying, say help, say help, get us help. And I dragged that cop right over and put him in front of Syl, between Syl and the Yakuza guy who was threatening him. And that brought everything to a standstill. And then the place got flooded with cops. And uh, all the Yakuza's turned into nice guys and everybody starts talking to Japanese and we don't know what's going on. We're really super nervous. And then... Um, because when the fight first started, there was a Japanese guy from the promoter who was helping us, and he ran out the door when Felix did. They split, and I thought, like, they're leaving us on our own here. Well, um, anyway, the cops came, so I get on the phone, and I just call the American Embassy. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, and, and it's, it's not like the movies, you know. I'm ringing all these different extensions. Finally, some guy answers the phone. It's the middle of the night. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning or something. I call the embassy. And this guy answers the phone, and I said, we're in trouble. We're Americans. We're having a problem here. And he goes, well... I'm like a guard. I'm in the kitchen to get a beer. Like, you know? <laughs> and I said, well, we need some help. We need somebody from the embassy to come down and represent us and everything. So uh, within about uh, 45 minutes or so, some guy looking like Sidney Poitier shows up with an attache case and a suit and looked great. And I said, you know, this is Sylvain, and he's had this problem with these So they all go down to the police station with the Sill and the embassy guy and uh, my ex-wife was the manager that day uh, she was managing that tour we were doing it together so she went with Sill down to the police station and Luli went and because uh, she didn't want to stay in the hotel she wanted to be with the police you know and uh 
and they all go off to talk about it, and I get the band to pack up, and we're getting ready to leave on a moment's <laughs> notice. You know, get the hell out of there. At which point, Luli comes running back to the hotel, and she said that there's six cars of Yakuza guys out in front of the police station, and I don't know what's going on and everything. Then my ex-wife calls up, and she says, like, everything's okay. The Yakuza's apologizing. They're writing a written apology. And I said, well, do you know about the six carloads of guys out in front of the police? And she goes, those are our guys. Like, that's where our guy went in the first place. When he ran out of the hotel, he ran to get reinforcements. And we had a friggin' army out there. And uh, we apparently were protected by a different branch of the Yakuza's. <laughs> and uh, and these guys found out who they were messing with. They were writing apologies and begging forgiveness. And, Holy uh, shit. Oh, then later, yeah, when I went back to Japan several years later, because I, I started making a relationship uh, and getting more and more friends in Japan, and eventually in 1979, I went there and got an apartment in Japan and stayed for the better part of the year. Uh, and at one point, I think it was during that period, uh, when my friend, who was kind of a higher up in the Yakuza organization, um, and he had told me that those guys had apologized and that in a ceremony, the guy had to cut off the tip of his pinky as a formal apology, like that's how they apologize in the Yakuza. When they've done something wrong, they cut off a piece of their pinky. (laughs) And that this was in a jar that they were supposed to uh, present to me, that he was apologizing to me as a representative of the band that he had offended. This is years later. Yeah, and I I didn't want to see it. I knew I couldn't bring it home. Right. (laughs) I didn't want it. And I remember saying to him that I appreciate the customs of your country, but the customs agents at my country won't allow me to bring a pinky home. So I don't think I can take it from you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Please tell him I accept his apology. (laughs) So he he did end up cutting (laughs) off part of his pinky. Yeah. Wow. Uh, they, they they actually do that. It's uh, that's insane. Yeah, you hear about it, but in my life, I end up in strange places. And because I knew that guy, I actually ended up uh, when he passed away, and I went to his funeral. And there were several guys there missing pinkies. pinkies. You know, in fact, there was one guy who was kind of a captain who had two pinkies missing. And I thought, like, what did you do wrong twice, and you still ended up in charge or something? Right. <laughs> you know? like, but uh, they have their customs, and we have ours. You know? yeah, so yeah. Uh, not something you can bring home. You no, know? Most, most certainly not. You but, can't wear uh, it and put in, like, a little charm wear it around your neck or anything. No, but most of my experiences in Japan, actually, i got to say, were absolutely wonderful. And I did spend more most of a year getting to meet Japanese bands and taking pictures of them there, and I had an apartment. And I really felt extremely comfortable um, Who were some of the bands that you met over there? Uh, well, for, uh, foremost, first and foremost was Sheena and the Rockets, uh, who are great people. Unfortunately, Sheena passed away last year. Uh, but Makoto and Sheena were like the Ike and Tina of Japan if uh, Ike had been a house husband and a wonderful guy who right. was also a journalist. And Makoto writes books about uh, blues. He actually wrote a book. He was into computers very early when uh, you had to write your own programs in DOS, D-O-S, the oh, yeah. um, computer language and and you really had to go in and write that kind of stuff and he wrote a book called dos uh dos blues which <laughs> was like you know computer technology for blues musicians <laughs> you know uh anyway they were wonderful people and sheena on stage is as exciting almost uh, i mean nobody's quite like tina turner but uh she's like tina turner but different <laughs> um and uh and she was fantastic. I had a long relationship with them, uh, and also I met a group called The Plastics, which actually had kind of a hit over here, uh, a big hit in Japan and then in England. Uh, uh, what was her name? Uh, oh, uh, there's a band called Shizatsu, which is Japanese for suicide, uh, which is a rather severe band. Um, 
Oh, just so many. Uh, well, speaking oh, of suicide. Uh, g- girls, uh, girls, boys, or yeah, girl, it was a, a kind of New York Dolls takeoff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, boys, boys uh, was another band over there. Um, well, speaking of suicide, you were around at the very beginning of CBGB, correct? Mm, yeah. Like were, were you were there the first couple of nights that they started doing shows? Uh, there? Pretty much. We I remember seeing television with Richard Hell doing Blank Generation. Uh, I was with David Johansson. I remember David telling. Uh, uh, tell, uh, Richard will probably deny this, but I do remember sitting at the table after the first set when he said, I belong to the blank generation. And David said, why don't you just leave the word out? Like, it's just blank. Like, it's not there, you know? Right. And uh, and so the second set, he did it like that. And, of course, that's the way it got recorded. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, it wasn't Blondie, but there was a band called The Stilettos that mm-hmm. Debbie Harry was in before Blondie. Uh, Fred Sonic Smith, who ended up marrying Patti Smith, uh, he was in Stilettos. And I think Chris was there. I think that's where Chris and Debbie met. Uh, in the very early days, uh, CBGB's was just this little hole in the wall in the Bowery. Um, kind of small. The bar, was, the stage was at the end of the bar. And then behind that, there was kitchens and a pool table and, uh, you know, a, a, a bathrooms and so on. Uh, and eventually, as the club started getting more and more popular, Hilly took that whole back area, cleared it out, and extended the club all the way to the back. And it got much bigger. But in the early days, it was really kind of a small bar. <coughs> like a little hole small bar. Wall. Very yeah. much, yeah. Originally, he called it Hilly's on the Bowery. Um, and I once got in trouble with Jane County uh, for repeating the story that um, television was the first band to play at CBGB's uh, because he claims that he was the first band that played at CBGB's. And also, Eric Emerson played there. And uh, Jane got all upset that I said that television was there. And then I actually researched it and found out that uh, Jane did play there before television, several months before. He played there in November and December of, I think, seventy. 73, whatever, 74, I think, and 75. Uh, but at that point, in 74, when Wayne played there, it was called Hilly's on the Bowery. Right. And so it, was it wasn't the, actually CBGB. In the spring, when Hilly decided to change the name to CBGB's, and he was literally putting the sign up that said CBGB's, uh, was when Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell came walking by and said, oh, can we rehearse here? And the guy said, yeah. And so they were the first band to play at CBGB. But certainly not the first band to play at that club or that space. The space had been a bar for, you know, decades before that. Um, yeah. So you. So it's it's crazy that you you're like this interconnected tissue between starting with like the bands in the early early seventies, nineteen seventy, mm. all through the punk scene, and then up to Green Day. Even. Mm. Are you still and touring the bands and things? My, 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 and uh, White Stripes, yeah. Not the White Stripes, the Stripes from Ireland. Oh, okay. Uh, they're young, about 18 years old. A uh, really fantastic R&B band uh, that brings back the spirit of early rock and roll uh, and really nice kids. Um, that's my you know, band that I really like. That's the youngest, newest band that I like nowadays. Um, but yeah, along the way, uh, I have interconnected with a lot of people because it occurs to me one day that you know, somebody like Alice Cooper is always in Alice Cooper's dressing room. Uh, I remember, like, Tina Turner is always in Tina Turner's dressing room. So she was asking me one night, what's Madonna like? Because I had seen some of Madonna's very first shows at the Roxy and at the Danceteria in New York. And, you know, when I went to England, they were asking me, you know, what's this like? I remember being on tour in Japan with the Bay City Rollers, and they had this nice bus that had a videotape, uh, you know, a VHS machine. <coughs> and I had VHS copies of videotapes that I had made of bands 
friends at Max's Kansas City, like Blondie and Tel- uh, Blondie and Robert Gordon and Patti Smith, and and I had a documentary tape that I had made of the New York Dolls, and I was showing that to the Bay City Rollers, you know, in Japan. Right. <laughs> you know, so I was in in funny ways connecting all of these different groups. In fact, I showed those tapes to Kiss also in Tokyo uh, when they were there, and we had a night off and well, I, yeah, I went to the machine. Kind of the things that. that- <laughs> You know, with your books and and with the uh, documentary and things that you, you, I was watching last night and talking to you last night, is that there are the musicians and there's the bands, but then there's all these other people around the bands that kind of will connect these bands together, mm. and they're they're just as much a part of the scene and just as much a part of the lore and the history of rock and roll mm. as any of these bands are, probably even more so in many cases. Um. Well, I don't know if it's more so. I mean, the musicians make the band, but they don't, you know, get anywhere without other people helping right. them. Um, and the band does have to have an image. I mean, it occurred to me the other day, uh, I had a doctor who told me he was in a band when he was in college, and I went back to look him up on the internet, and I realized the first thing I wanted to see was what they looked like. Right. And then I was going to see what their music was like, but I wanted a page to come up where I could see them. And an image says so much, you know, that... Uh, you know the way people look is often the way they sound right you know? uh it's like you know looking at a fine wine you can tell by the label because the people who make the wine make the label and you can tell by the graphics and the design where their taste level is you know what you know how they see things and that's the same with a band is how they dress to present themselves to the world is how they present themselves to the world uh iggy says it in my movie when you see a guy with like you know bright pants that cut off a little below the knee and he's got some big silky kind of shirt and a foot wide bow tie and giants you know foot long sunglasses you've got an idea of what his music may sound <laughs> like you know um and so the image has quite a lot to do with a band and you know uh when uh, they're advertising for a band they can't play the music in a magazine or on the front of a club they have to put a picture there and that picture has to show who's playing there and why you want to go and see them and in the old days you know with a uh, an album cover you would look at the album cover and that would pique your interest whether or not you wanted to go further and actually hear what these people or sometimes it wasn't even the band you know uh, the Doors put out an album where there were these circus characters in an alleyway and it was just this intriguing interesting picture and you kind of go well who made that I want to hear what else they're making you know Uh, so the album cover would draw you in nowadays people make videos uh, you know instead of album covers so you go to YouTube and you see 10 seconds of a video and decide whether or not you're going to like a band Um, so the image has you know uh, as much to do with a band's success as the music they make Um, and so many people don't want to believe that or admit that but image is just as important as the music being made, what mm. you're projecting as an image. There's some some of the best musicians in the world you'll never hear because they don't understand. Right. Like it's that. show business. You got to yeah. put on a show, right? <laughs> you know? And if you don't put on a show, then you know uh, there's some serious musicians who just want to play the music, and there are some people who just want to hear music. But I don't think, for me, if you go to a theater and you're sitting down to just hear music when your eyes are wide open and you're looking at somebody on the stage, they ought to be doing something. Right. Especially since so many <coughs> so many people can be doing something, you know, and. Uh, and so I gravitate towards those, and particularly myself, I like a visual act that I'd rather see somebody like Kiss or Alice Cooper that really performs an act. It was interesting, uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I went to see a band that when you hear their music, 
you don't think it's very theatrical, uh, a band called 21 Pilots. It's okay. a very popular band nowadays, and my granddaughter is infatuated with them, and for her birthday, I took her to a concert. And I was very much grandpa, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> wondering who this band was and not really knowing much about them. She was singing along to every word of every song and loving it. Uh, but I found it interesting that in, for this band, which is more about intellectual, about the music that they play, about the lyrics and what they're saying, you know, that these kids love, uh, was that in order to perform in a big place like Barclay Center, they had a somewhat elaborate, if minimal, you know, kind of toned down, but still a very elaborate stage show where it wasn't giant video screens, but they did have a certain amount of video and lighting effects. Uh, they did a couple of really interesting tricks where I have seen before where an audience, a, a, a singer will go out and have the audience hold him up and he stands on the audience while they're holding him and he sings. Well, in this case, the band is, is just a singer and piano player, the same guy p plays piano and sings, and a drummer. And they actually had a couple of roadies come out with this platform and kind of floated across the front of the audience where they're holding up this platform. At which point, the drummer gets out onto the platform and he's playing drums on being supported by the audience. And I thought, you know, I've been around a long time. I never saw that trick. That's good, <laughs> you know. And another time when the piano, when the singer is playing this long piano solo and he's sitting there, and at one point, four roadies come out and cover him with this big black cloth. And he keeps playing the solo, he keeps playing the solo, he's playing. And when the solo's over, all of a sudden the spotlight comes on and he's up on the third balcony singing like a magic trick. Like he suddenly. Because they had, you know, some kind of dome inside the. the um, when they put the. The cloth over him, you know, it's kind of a magic trick. There was like a dome where his head would have been, and he must have slipped out through a trap door huh. and made it out to the, to the, you know, to the side of the stage and up to the audience somehow. And, and he appears up in the audience. I thought, now that's really good. You know, that's a good trick. Yeah. And it's these kind of visual tricks that really amuse you. So you're not just playing the album sitting in your living room right. or seeing somebody repeat that, but you're seeing somebody put on a show that, you know, amuses and amazes you. And I like that kind of show. Yeah, I definitely do too. I mean, uh, there's there's a band out now. This is a band called Power Bottom, P W R B T T M. They're I think they've really kind of captured that. They're 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 two young people and and they play kind of power pop, but they're kind of understanding that that's where you need to go. You have to put on a show. And yeah. They definitely put on a show, and that's probably the best example I have of of, of a band doing that now mm. that fully understands like. This is an experience. We're going to draw you into this experience. Mm. And, um, you know, I grew up in the 90s where <laughs> indie rock became a thing, and that was mm. kind of the anti that. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. you know, like what, what, like what started because of grunge and things like that, where it was like the anti show, the anti rock star. But the older I get, the more I come back into like wanting to have that experience with a show. Yeah, you want to go out. I mean, that's why Kiss is great. It's like one trick after another, you yeah. know? It's like an amazing experience. I remember when uh, when they came back for a reunion at one point, Ace was back in the band for a while, and they had this big reunion at Madison Square Garden, and a critic wrote them up, and he didn't like the music, and Gene was, you know, angry about the review, and he wrote that when you come out of a Kiss concert, you only need three words to review a kiss concert wow 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 he said when you go to a circus you don't come out and review the music right you know 
<laughs> that's true. And, and Kiss is quite a circus, yeah. you know, and they have all kinds of tricks and bombs and explosions and blood and a you know, drum platform that goes 30 feet in the air and a guitar that spits fire. Yeah. You don't need to review the music. No. You know? Although yeah. their music is anthems yeah. that the whole crowd has seen along. I mean, this <clears> is one of my pet peeves with critics is that they consider themselves to be the authority on the music. And, for instance, that guy wrote that about Kiss while the audience is screaming, I want to rock and roll right. all night, you know, and having a good time. Uh, but particularly I noticed that when I went to see the Go-Go's and they played a great show at Masters of Garden and the audience was cheering all the way up to the back row, 20,000 people screaming for extra encores. And the critic wrote about the music that a certain song was not in key, then, you know, the one guitar wasn't in tune. And I said, did you notice 20,000 people screaming right. for encores? Or were you just sitting there by yourself critiquing each note i mean right. it's not about each note i mean no. you know I, I saw chuck berry a whole bunch of times where he always played with a pickup band he didn't like to bring a band his music is simple and easy and the way chuck would come out at the beginning of a show he would he wouldn't rehearse or do a sound check or anything i mean it's a famous line in the hail hail rock and roll movie where bruce springsteen talks about being in the opening band for chuck berry and chuck doesn't show up until five minutes before they go on and bruce is like well what songs we're going to play because we're going to play some chuck berry songs (laughs) and when you get on stage he would start up and he would kind of encourage the people to play the beat and to show them which chords and he was literally teaching the band how to play a chuck berry song in the first one two three four five songs whatever it took because after seeing Chuck a whole bunch of times, I would notice that at a certain point, as after the show began, he would turn to the audience and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, now we'd like to begin our show. And that meant that he had the band trained to play with him. And I saw him at Madison Square Garden where he walked over to the guitar player and like halfway through the first song, he just walked to the guitar amp, took the plug out of the amp, handed it to the guitar player, like kind of behind him and went back to playing like, you're out of here. (laughs) I was standing there holding his plug. Oh my God, my moment with Chuck at Madison Square Garden, thrown off the stage. And he ended up throwing the rest of the band off the stage and playing by himself and getting the audience to mob the stage and come up on stage and dance with him and kept the whole house rocking. Um, and often he wasn't in tune. He wasn't... He played music. You know, he played rock and roll. He didn't play note-for-note note perfection. I mean, that's and, what rock and roll is anyway, right? and, You know, it's like when they made the Hail Hail movie. It's a, it's a great movie, Hail Hail Rock and Roll, and it's Chuck's 60th birthday, and Eric Clapton, uh, most notably Keith Richard. Uh, Keith Richard comes and plays in the band, and they rehearse, and they rehearse a lot. And Keith's idea is that you have to rehearse, and everybody knows what to do. And uh, he mentions uh, in uh, something I read of uh, an interview with Keith that he when, he when Chuck Berry first came to England and Keith went to see him, he was a big fan, and he knew about Johnny Johnson, the piano player, and the other members of Chuck's band that he had played with in St. Louis, and he played with on his records. But when he got to England, he was using whoever was in that town who could play that night. <laughs> you know, and, um, and Keith was very upset that he didn't have Johnny Johnson, and he didn't have his band with him. <coughs> and so in that movie where they're rehearsing a lot, that's the way Keith and most musicians learn how to do a show. You rehearse and rehearse, and you get it right. right. Chuck's idea is you go out there and you play it. And so in the middle of the movie, and when a concert is happening, and the audience is there, and they're rocking away... Uh, and they've got it all down, and Chuck goes, change the key. And Keith looks at him and goes, no. <laughs> <laughs>
but Chuck wants to keep it spontaneous. He wants to make it of the moment. And so many people don't get that. That yeah. rock and roll is of the moment, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I should add now, because I said it in the talk last night, I love to uh, remind people that my work, my photos, are not just about rock and roll celebrity or famous bands that I happen to have a picture of somebody you've heard of. Uh, my work is about freedom. Uh, the basis of rock and roll is freedom. It's uh, Rock and roll is the ability to be able to go out and express your feelings very loudly. Yeah. And that's the freedom of rock and roll, and that's why rock and roll is spread around the world, is because it expresses that kind of freedom. And that's why people all over the world like it. Uh, I ought to tell your readers, I mean, listeners out here, I just got a new web uh, app kind of, yeah, it's an app, I guess, um, and it's called Radio.Garden. And if oh. you just write Radio.Garden in your browser there, it'll go to this site that comes up kind of like Google World, where you yeah. see the whole world. Well, I've seen the site, And yeah. the whole world is covered with tiny green dots. And you can click on any one of those green dots, and you're in a city somewhere listening to the local radio station. Yep. And some cities have up to a dozen or even 18. Some of them only have one. There's small towns. There's thousands, thousands of radio stations available through this app all over the world. And a nice thing about it is there's no words on it. There's no countries. There's no cities. There's just green dots of right. radio coming at you. And um, I've been listening to this great station, uh, Connect Uganda, from, I think it's Logos in Uganda. Uh, and I finally got tired of the commercials, so I've been listening to the radio station in Kingston. And you just go all over the world. Uh, but I clicked on something in South Africa, and they were playing Green Day. <laughs> and I clicked up in something in Zagreb, and they were playing Green Day. <laughs> and there are places where you can find local music, but it's amazing how the American rock and roll is everywhere. Yeah. You know, and I think it's because it just carries that feeling and that, you know, subliminal message of freedom. And also, like, something you said last night as well is, like, a lot of these people, maybe not as much anymore, but when you were coming up and taking these pictures, these were the outcasts, the freaks who who wanted to express themselves in a way that they weren't able to when they were younger and in, in high school. Well, like Patty Smith talks about that. How in high school we were the nerds, we were right. the uncool kids. I mean, I certainly was not considered cool in high school, right. uh, but developed a personality uh, in. CBGBs and in the rock and roll world to the extent that a, a friend of mine who knew me from working in the theater group in high school where I was the AV guy, the guy who would show up and show the movies <laughs> or the slideshows, you know, in your class. And uh, and I worked in the theater group doing the sound and lighting and kind of things. And I was Robert Gruen back then. And then over the years, she heard about this rock photographer, and she developed, uh, she really liked my photos and everything. And I finally met her in the mid-'80s and, uh, and ended up working with her on a film called Tokyo Pop in Japan, a really cute little film. And then later she... Uh, made uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer, which turned into a whole franchise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but when we first met, uh, she was very excited to meet Bob Gruen, the rock and roll photographer, and we went and had dinner to talk about this film she was going to make in Tokyo. And uh, as we were talking, I asked her where she grew up, and it turned out that we were in the same high school together. And she was like, oh, my God, you're not that guy, guy Robert Gruen uh, I knew in high school like she couldn't believe that I had turned into some cool person because I was such a nerd right. and uncool in high school and that was most of the rejects and outcasts who ended up in CBGB's who yeah. reinvented themselves and uh, I mean Legs McNeil was not cool <laughs> in high school and you know some people are just the way they are and they're so free to be themselves that they invent a style and Legs certainly Invented a style, <laughs> you know, and a genre. people follow suit whenever they see uh, someone being 
you know, the like. Having well, now the, it's interesting that people, you know, kind of follow them to be like the cool ones. But it's kind of like what uh, Who was saying in Tommy, you know, where people look up to somebody cool and want to be like them. And the whole point of being like them is to be like you. Right. And the whole, you know, expression, you know, I remember when uh, at one point there was some talk about putting a statue of John Lennon in Central Park. And Yoko and I and the people who knew John were very opposed to the idea because uh, John used to make fun of statues, you know, where there's a pigeon shitting on your head. Right. You know, some famous guy. Uh, and he really didn't want that to happen to him. Uh, but also the idea is not to admire John Lennon, but to be inspired by his art and his the things that he said and the songs that he wrote, to be inspired to be yourself. Right. Uh, that people should look up to themselves and not look up to others and try to be like others, but to try to be the best themselves that they can be. Like if there's you an know? example by these people, it's not to be like them. To do what they did and try to be more like themselves. Yeah, to do what you do, right. not what somebody else does. You know, because that's what, like Oscar Wilde said: you have to be yourself because everybody else is already taken. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, one of my favorite. I, lo- I love to go to the induction ceremonies at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and actually see these musicians. You know, being humble and and actually, you know, being uh, aware that they've actually succeeded in this insane life that they've had. Right. Uh, actually, has been recognized. I remember Ray Davies saying, "You know, when I was in high school, my professor said I would." end up in an institution and here i am yeah. <laughs> uh, but my favorite was Didi ramon who got up there because all the other people they all thank their lawyer and their manager and their mother and most of them thank god uh Didi ramon he just got up there and said i want to thank myself because i did a great job and he literally patted himself on the back and he said thank you Didi, <laughs> you know, for getting me here uh because that's the truth you know uh that's another band you're very people have with. to recognize that yeah the ramones were great guys uh, uh, great friends you ever go on the road with them at all they didn't really go on the road they went home <laughs> um, i mean i saw them in england i saw them in boston i saw them in uh Japan, even uh, that you know, happened to be on trips when they were there. Uh, but as far as traveling, they traveled in a small van that basically held Monty and the four guys, and uh, not much else. For most of the time, girlfriends or wives weren't allowed in the bus, it was just the band. Johnny ran it like a strict military operation. Um, and I remember a classic story when the Ramones were opening for David Johansson in Boston, and it was two nights, Friday and Saturday night. And uh, after, you know, at the first show, David was saying to Joey, like, hey, you want to hang out after the show? And Joey said, no, we're going to drive home tonight. And David's like, well, aren't you playing tomorrow night? He goes, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow to play the show. And he goes, why are you going to drive five hours back to New York and five hours back to Boston? Why don't you get a hotel room, stay over? You know, he goes, oh, Johnny doesn't want to pay money for a hotel room. (laughs) (laughs) So they would literally drive five or six hours back to New York and five or six hours back to Boston the next day for the next show and back to New York again that night. Uh, to save the well, I guess at that time it made sense because now gas Not is probably a lot. more a hotel, money. A hotel back then, well, gas was cheap back then, yes, but a hotel was like 40 bucks. Right. And two or three guys could share that. You right. Know? Uh, it was really kind of penny-wise <laughs> and pound-foolish, but um, that's the way they operated. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I saw the Romans around the world. They were great. Uh, in Tokyo, actually... Uh, I took. Uh, I mentioned Sheena and the Rockets earlier. I took Sheena, who's one of the better-known people in Japan, a uh, beautiful Japanese woman. Uh, I took her and Joey to the Budokan. I'd gotten some tickets. I knew a promoter or something. I got tickets to uh, Bob Dylan at the Budokan. 
which was for us, for me, especially. Is that where Sheena and the Punk Rocker comes from? No. Uh, Sheena the Punk Rocker is the song, and that's where Sheena and the Rockets come from. Okay. (laughs) Uh, They named themselves after the song, and then one of their biggest thrills is that they got to open for the Ramones when they came to Japan and got to be friends. I introduced uh, Sheena and Joey, and then they ended up opening for them and uh, having dinner at Sheena's house and... um, you know, they developed a good friendship, and so we all went together that night to go see Bob Dylan at the Budokan. And uh, I think Tony uh, Tony Garnier is a good friend of mine. He got us to pass us to come backstage after the show, and so we went backstage. And Bob Dylan actually came in the room, and he kind of looked around. He wears this kind of hoodie that's kind of a boxer's hoodie that comes about a half a foot out in front of your face. So you basically see two glowing eyes in there, like, you know, one of them uh, (coughs) from from the Star Wars. Oh, the Jawas, yeah. Yeah, those little guys. You just see these two little glowing eyes in the back of a hood. And somewhere in there is Bob Dylan, you know. And he kind of came in the room, and he just kind of went past me and Sheena, and he saw Joey, and he stopped and said, Hey, Joey, how are you doing? And Joey was thrilled, you know. He chatted with him for a minute and said, Oh, I just made this new CD. Here's my record. (laughs) and um he was joey was a really sweet guy uh as macho and tough as johnny was joey was kind of the opposite and uh it's interesting having known them so well and been in their dressing room and been around them so many years i never knew until monty wrote his book uh, about the animosity between johnny and joey that uh, johnny had taken joey's girlfriend basically and uh, and Joey hated him for the next 20 years that they worked together. They didn't speak. Wow. And that if they were on the bus and Johnny or Joey had anything to say to each other, they would write a note and give it to Monty. And Monty would give it to Johnny. And Johnny would write back and give it to Monty. And Monty would give it to Joey. <coughs> and that went on for many years. Um you know, to his credit, you know, the way you look at it in, in a kind of male world, you think, well, he took his girlfriend. But in fact, she left him to live with Johnny and she was in love with Johnny. And to this day, she supports and, uh, you know, she's the main force behind Johnny's legacy. Uh, and her whole life from the minute she was with him was all about Johnny. So it was too bad for Joey, but uh, Linda loved Johnny and that's the way it worked out. But, you know, the fact that they could work together, that a band is a business. It's not just, you know, brotherly love. Right. Um, Bruce Springsteen recently mentioned how um, he had been in a number of bands, and in the 70s when he got a record contract, he got the contract and he signed it for him, and the band worked for him. He said because rock and roll, you know, he wanted freedom and choice to be able to change things. Right. He said rock and roll is the only industry in the world where you meet some like-minded friends in high school and you start in the same business, and you're expected to stay with those three or four guys for the rest of your life, right. <laughs> no matter what changes you go through. You know, But people do go through changes, and it's not just that one girlfriend doesn't get in along with another, but you start having children, and you start living in different places, and you start having different friends and living different lifestyles. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, like with The Clash, they started doing different things, and unfortunately, they broke up. Uh, with The Rolling Stones, around the same time, they didn't break up. They just stopped seeing each other. <laughs> and they fired their manager, and they didn't tour, and they ended up making solo records, but they never told anybody they broke up. Right. So when they got back together at the end of the 80s, uh, it wasn't a reunion because they never broke up. Right. They and didn't tell anybody they were I remember playing. Joe one time saying, we should have done that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, you just... Go different ways for a while, but right. you don't have to break up. You know? Right. Yeah, I've dealt with that in a few but, bands. Where I'm like, we're not 
don't we're not gonna play a last show we're not breaking up and well then on the other hand is the heartbreakers who played reunion tour after reunion right. tour after reunion tour they kept breaking up and going we're back play another <laughs> reunion tour <laughs> you know? well i mean we're winding down now i know you guys got mm. some things to do but is there any other particular stories that you had in mind that you'd like to share uh traveling on the road are oh, we going to tell that one about the icantina guy uh, we were talking about Co- huh? the Corvette story, or which one? Uh, well, that's part of it, but um, yeah, about being on the road, about going on the road with a band and the complications. It's and about being in Germany too. Uh, oh yeah, well, oh, we um, got plenty of time. You can tell as many as you uh, like. Yeah, when I first started working with I can Tina Turner, um, and I worked, I, I met them uh, in a kind of unique way. Um, and I take some pictures, and they like my pictures, and I ended up starting to work with them in New York and taking more pictures. And then by about a year later, I had a picture I really liked a lot, and I woke up one morning looking at this picture, and uh, it's a live picture of Tina, and it's a really gorgeous picture uh, of a spotlight shining on her in profile. And <clears throat> I really thought it could make an album cover, but by that time I knew enough about Ike and the chaos of the situation around him and all the, you know, a lot of drugs involved and... Um, and I knew that I couldn't send this to the studio and expect someone else to show it to Ike and him to be able to, you know, that person to relay a comment back. That the only way it could happen is if I actually went to wherever they were and showed Ike the picture and had the conversation myself. And they were playing in Washington that night. I woke up actually outside of New York. We were house-sitting for a friend about an hour outside of New York. And I woke up and realized, like, I had to go to Washington. And, you know, part of the thing in my life is following your intuition. You just right. get feelings and you just get the strong feeling you got to follow it, you know. Not, oh, every crazy idea, but <laughs> when you got a strong feeling of the what you just got to do, it's often a good idea to follow that up and, and you know, follow your intuition. So um, in those days, it was cheap to fly from, uh, there was a, a shuttle plane that you literally didn't need reservations. You went to the airport, you got on a plane, you paid $25 from your seat on the plane and you flew to Boston or Washington every half every hour on the wow. hour uh, and it would come Imagine back that now. yeah <laughs> you know just to be able to go in and get on a plane and go somewhere um so I flew down to Washington because, and I checked with the office before I left. And you know, this would be days before cell phones, but you could call up the office in California. At least they would know where I and Tina were, and they said that they were staying in a hotel by the airport in Washington. So I just flew down there, and I started looking for a hotel. And it turns out there's two airports in Washington. There's National and Dulles, and Dulles mm-hmm. is way out of town somewhere. And I was at National, and they were at the hotel at Dulles. And I get a cab ride out, and I only had about a hundred bucks with me altogether. And a cab ride is about eighty dollars to get out there. And on the way, the cab driver tells me that this is a new highway that they've just built 45 miles with no entrance or exit. It's a straight express to the airport. And we get there, and he gets me to the hotel, and I go up to the desk, and I ask for Ike and Tina, and they're not there. And I call up the office in California, and the thing was they didn't... That, ho- that hotel was too far from the gig, and their gig was actually in Baltimore, so they moved to a hotel about a block away from the theater in Baltimore. Now I'm out in the countryside <laughs> in Virginia somewhere, <laughs> you know. And some guy who was there in the lobby heard me talking and heard my problem, and he said, oh, well, we're going to a concert in Baltimore. Uh, I'll give you a ride. You know, uh, me and my girlfriend were just about to leave, and he had some pretty girl. We go outside, and he has this beautiful Corvette. And I get in the car with him, and I'm sitting on the gear ship between this guy and his girlfriend, and we're flying down this road, when all of a sudden he realizes he forgot the tickets, drops me off, says, I'm going to have to let you out, pal. And he leaves me on the side of the highway, makes a U-turn across the divider, and zooms off into the night. And, of course, I put my hand out, and the first car up is a cop. 
And he picks me up and like, so what are you doing here? What's going on? And I told him my story, and he said, okay, get in. And luckily, you know, in those days, just having long hair was a reason enough to get beaten up by a cop. Right. So uh, he said, you're lucky I'm the young cop. Like, he was a young guy, and he said, the other one's an old guy. He's a real ball buster, but I'll give you a ride to the end of the highway. So he gives me a ride to the end of the highway. I get out again. I start hitchhiking again. Some kid um, who had worked at the airport was on his way home, picked me up, heard my story, and he was going halfway. He said, I'll drive you all the way. And he took me right to the back door of the theater. And so I went in, and uh, I showed the guards some pictures I had done with the band, and I was working with Ike and Tina, and he let me in. Actually, he, took, he said, if you give me one of those pictures, I'll let you in. So I did. <laughs> and I got in, and I talked to Ike, and he looked at the picture, and he said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, I didn't have a plan. He said, well, come to California with us. I'll get Ronda to get you a ticket. And so I went to California for a week, and on the Thursday of that week, uh, ended up spending a day with Tina, uh, taking pictures of her around the house, of her taking her kids to a soccer game, uh, went to a department store, went to a grocery store. Uh, in the grocery store, while she was paying for the groceries, I took a picture of her in profile that ended up being my first album cover picture. It's an album called Enough Said. Uh, that picture was done in a grocery store. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, made it back to New York. Now, the fun part about that story is... Flash forward about another six months to the fall when I continue were playing in Syracuse and I flew up there to see them and I'm walking across the campus uh, towards the you know the theater where the show is and some kid comes out of the dark and says, hey, Bob, remember me? And I turn and it's the kid that gave me the ride, the kid that had picked me up when I was hitchhiking. Like and, I said about coincidence. And I said, you want to see a show? Come <laughs> on in. And I got him in to see the show. And That's paid him crazy. Back for the ride. Yeah, coincidences come up all the time. Yeah. And, and like being on the road, it's not as small as it was even when I was touring like in the late 90s, but even more so back then. Mm. I'm sure just the touring circuit was a small, small world. Like you yeah, run into it's, it's everybody. turned into a huge corporate business now, you know, right. uh, with <coughs> tractor trailers full of equipment and, you know, roadies that specialize in all different things like that and lighting and. You know, effects and so on. Back then, it was a much simpler operation. Yeah. Uh, but still, today, there's lots of bands that get around like that. There was a band that we got to be pretty friendly with, the Sex Slaves, uh, who are a really fun band. Uh, they have great songs. Uh, I don't know if I can say all of the lyrics. Oh, you, know? yeah, you can uh, say whatever you want on this. Oh, podcast. good, because they have songs like "I Just Want to Fuck You All Night Long," <laughs> yeah. uh, things I can really relate to. <laughs> 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 uh, they're basically they sound sexist, but their audience was about eighty percent women because they're so upfront and so sexual that's what sex slaves are you know um, <laughs> and they were just two guys who uh three right three guys are you know guitar bass and drum uh who traveled around in a van slept in a band played in every bar that would have them from here to california from you know redwood forest to staten island you name <laughs> it you know this land was their land and they played everywhere and they lived in the van, and they had a little disco ball, and they had a little smoke machine, and they had a couple of little effects and everything, and then we called that, yeah, band in a box. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they had this box that had all their effects and everything, and they would take them out, and they would set it up in the corner of a Chinese restaurant or in somebody's loft party or my birthday party one time uh, or in a club, whatever the gig they could get. You know, uh, what was that, the... Uh, 
that one in Las Vegas that everybody ended up to the, uh, the double down. The double down, yeah. <laughs> they had a bacon martini. <laughs> the double down in Las Vegas. That's probably still there. Uh, you know, or a place like one of our favorites was in Chapel Hill. Um, I love Chapel uh, Hill. Uh, called the Cave. Yeah, I've been there. It's in Played the middle of town, times. and yeah. you have to kind of know about it because oh, yeah. it's this little alley between mm-hmm. two buildings that you wouldn't even see was an opening. Uh, but down there, we've seen every kind of band. You know, earlier you were talking about some bands that just stand there and some bands that put on a show. Right. And you, when you walk into the cave, you never know what you're going to get. There could be two people that look like classical music students doing something very serious, or there could be 12 people with tubas and violins yep. and, you know, dancing girls or whatever. I mean, <coughs> and I love those kind of clubs that you just walk yeah. in and there's always somebody playing and you never know what to expect. <laughs> oh, and one guy, yeah, he was like a folk singer. And we tried to slide out because he was so boring. And we tried to slide out and he goes, wait, wait, this is my rock song. You're my audience because it was just one pal. <laughs> And, and us and we and, and the door out was right next to the stage so he stopped us as we were trying to slide out the door and he said no you're my audience wait I'm gonna play my rock song and then he started playing he goes I was sitting on a rock and I wrote this song like, oh please let us <laughs> so uh, but we always have fun and we always go to places like that I'd, uh, you know, I'd much rather see something live than hear about it you know people sit there and they stare at their screen and think that they're getting some experiences but you're just you know you're you're watching other people's experiences you know and i think that people have to live in this world and you know like they said you know like uh, obama said on his speech you know if you don't like what somebody on the internet is saying why don't you get turn it off and go out and meet somebody in person and actually talk to them and i think that's one of the things about your photography that stands out is that you are there experiencing the show Mm. And just happen to snap some pictures. And well, it's yeah, less I'm there about as a like, fan. I need to yeah. be there, and I snap pictures because I like to tell people about exciting right. things. It's show and tell was, is always my favorite topic, and I like to go to exciting places and tell people about them. And one picture is worth a thousand words, right. you know. And so I try to get a picture that expresses what I saw. It's like what Billy Joe said in, in your uh, documentary, where he sees other photographers and they're behind the lens the whole time, taking pictures the whole time, yeah. and they'll see you down there, and you're watching and, and you know nod your head something. During the show, and I, I catch a couple of important moments. Yeah, uh, but it's not just seeing the world through the camera. Right. Uh, actually, I remember Billy Joe coming out of the stadium, even where people are all with their cell phones, and he said, "Put your cell phones down. You're here now. This is live. You have to be here. You can't right. just experience it through your phone. You know, you have to experience it through your eyes and ears, and and be a part of this world. And I think that's very important. And that's you know the way I live my life. Uh, I get out and see things." And and I, I think that definitely comes through in your photography. You definitely see that. And the freedom. Mm. Like what you were talking about, your friends, the sex slaves, that is freedom. That is rock and roll, yeah, just oh, to you, get up and look go wherever up online, you want. Listen to them, sex yeah. slaves. Uh, <laughs> what is it, All Night Long is the actual title of the song. Uh, and a couple other really good ones, like uh, me and my friends going out tonight. Uh, this, their, their album was fantastic. And... Um, and true good rock and roll energy, and and also listen to the Stripes, S T R Y P E S from Ireland. All right, uh, really. They're good. a newish band. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and they had a great first album, made a record deal in America, made a great second album. For some reason, the Americans record company didn't like the second album, didn't release it, wouldn't give them tour support. Uh, and here's a, I mean, just typical rock and roll story. This band is doing great around the world. They they play all over Ireland and England, clubs and festivals, festivals all over Europe. Or they've been to Japan and Australia a number of times, and they just can't come to America because it's very expensive to travel and to stay in hotels in America. So you need record company support. And just some executive didn't like the right. way their album sounded. I think it sounded too much like the first or not enough like the first. Just one, and, guy, uh, one person's opinion. One person's opinion, and they don't get the support. And they had all this momentum building, and uh, all of a sudden they're just you know stopped dead in the water until some record exec likes their next album, which they've just finished. So hopefully I mean, the next album will come back to America. One of my closest friends is a guy I've been a band with uh, has similar, a similar experience. Uh, Reggie, he's in the band Black Kids that mm. got popular for a little while but they were big overseas mm. and they still go and play big shows overseas mm. and they caught on a little bit in america but never quite caught on america's america. a tough market to crack uh, <laughs> the country music market in america is very big uh bigger than i think uh, I, I think it's bigger than the rock and roll market uh, certainly not in new york but in most of the country right. um although we've been listening to the country uh we we, we spent a lot of the last year going to north carolina to take care of my mom's house and uh, heard a lot of country music and it sounds a lot like rock and roll to me yeah. <laughs> you know just with like uh, a southern accent yeah exactly it's like it's rock pop and roll music. Southern yeah. accent, but um, it's not like the old country like Willie big, Nelson. And stuff. But it's such a big country that you know traveling in America takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy. Uh, you either have to you know take eight to ten hour bus trips or airplanes. Uh, hotels are expensive, so getting around America is much more expensive than getting around Europe, where you can get from one city to another in two or three hours instead right. of twelve. Right. You know, and uh, and they have a lot of smaller hotels, um, so traveling in America is very expensive and. Um, it, it, so it's harder to break in America, and also because it's such bigger place. Like in Europe, uh, like in England, they have mu- national music magazines and newspapers. There's a weekly uh, magazines that come out, and I know in the '70s there was the New Musical Express, there was the Record World, there was Melody Maker, uh, there was another one too. There was like four national weekly magazines about rock and roll about music and uh, and they would kind of invent things like you know this singer has a you know uh, a rift with some other right, you know, right, musician right. or something you know or somebody threw some beer at somebody and that was news you know because uh, every week they had to fill up a newspaper with stuff but in England they could print a newspaper and put it on a train on you know Tuesday night in London and Wednesday morning it was on sale in Edinburgh whereas in New York if you put a newspaper on a train in New York on Tuesday night on Wednesday morning it's in Pittsburgh right, you know? right. and it has even made it to St. Louis, and then right. it's got to get all the way out to L.A. So distribution is extremely more expensive in America, going 3,000 miles instead of 300 miles. Right. Um, so they're much more aware and much more into things over in Europe than they are in America, and a lot of the bands uh, really got much bigger, certainly Blondie, you know, that was playing clubs here in America, suddenly burst out with huge number one hits in England and in Europe, and they're still bigger in Europe than they ever were here. Uh, The Ramones, uh, all kinds of bands. Jimi Hendrix, I mean, starting off, you know, was playing a a sideman in a number of bands in America. All of a sudden, he got famous playing in England. Right. You know, it's a smaller place where people are really aware of what's going on, and it was easier for people to break over there and come back to America as a star rather than. And I've known several people who have done it that way, especially in Germany. Yeah. It seems like the yeah. bands are breaking in Germany quite a bit in the last ten yeah. years, twenty years. Um, but you, uh, so you, you have family in Chapel Hill. 
Uh, I did. My mom passed away. Oh, I'm and, sorry uh, to hear that. That's why we kept going back to. Uh, I was about to say there's but, uh, quite a good scene in Chapel Hill right now. Yeah, well, she lived there for 40 years, and so we were traveling for a long time. Every time we went there, uh, when she would go to sleep, I would go down to the cave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one time, actually, when I was there, Chiba Mata was playing when Sean Lennon was playing mm -hmm. with them. And uh, my mom was, I think, about 87 at that point. And uh, she said she's coming out with me. I said, Mom, this band doesn't go on until, like, midnight or something. She said, I'm coming with you. <laughs> and I remember going to the club. To, that was at the Cat's Cradle. Mm -hmm. And I went there, and I told the guy, I wanted to buy tickets they said we don't sell tickets in advance and I'm like I'm bringing my 87 year old mom here I want to know that there's going to be a ticket and he's looking at me like you're 87 year old mom I said you're going to remember me I'm coming with my mom tonight and you're going to have two tickets for me and so that night <laughs> like 11.30 I walk up with my mom and it was nice she had a good time she enjoyed the show and afterwards she got to meet Sean and that was cool that's that's really cool yeah, yeah so. and there's some great I mean like one of my favorite labels is out of their merch records is like Super Chunk and mm. all those bands that come out of uh, Chapel Hill it's a great great scene Although it, it all depends, you know. Some nights I get there and it's like nobody playing that night, or it's, you know. Uh... <laughs> what are you playing? What are you doing? Turn the fucker off. <laughs> I wanted to see what the blizzard was doing. It's nothing. It has to come with an advert. Uh, honey. How is the blizzard doing up there? That's why you guys there's, are here for the real, day. There's real inches. Really oh, it's happened. actually it's snowing. Uh, oh, yeah. We've been getting conflicting reports back and forth because we're stuck here because they canceled all the airlines. Right, yeah. Uh, we were supposed to fly back to New York today, uh, and this blizzard is coming in. And depending upon how you tune in or which app you use, there was either... 12 to 16 or 8 to 10 inches of snow or about an hour and a half ago there was like 0 to 1 inch of snow right. or maybe 1 to 2 inches and we're like you cancelled the plane for 2 inches of snow but I'm glad to be here and to get to do this yeah, podcast yeah it's and definitely great I hope somebody's out there listening oh yeah and I hope there's something we said that you know can inspire somebody absolutely to, uh, uh, where can we find you online where are the different better. places uh, well I have bobgruen.com that's okay. the main place um, I update my website periodically um there's a feature called Bob's Rock Scene where I put up a, a, a kind of a series of, you know, anywhere from a dozen to 28 or 30 pictures of where I've been and what I've done for the last month or a couple of months, uh, kind of a running diary, a photo diary of my life. And that's at bobgruen.com, as well as all kinds of special projects and things, links to, you know, things I've been involved in. Um, and a whole history, uh, all the pictures that are in my book are uh, on the site. Uh, I don't sell directly through the site unless somebody wants to contact me I, I, I will sell directly to people who contact me but mostly they go through several different galleries uh, notably the Morrison Hotel Gallery handles my work um, they do a good job with that um, I have several books out there's the Roxine book mm -hmm. there's the John Lennon the New York Years uh, the New York Dolls photos of Bob Gruen uh, the Clash I think it's also photos of Bob Gruen. Uh, the Yoko Ono book, which is called See Here Yoko, that's out. There are several DVDs that I produced. I made videotapes of some bands in the early 70s. And we have the I Can Tina Turner tape, which is I Can Tina Turner on the road, 1971-72, uh, which really shows what a great band and what a great couple they were. Um, if What's Love Got to Do With It showed why I Can Tina broke up. My film shows why they were together in the first right. place, because uh, they were a great, uh, great uh, incredibly talented I mean it's footage of Tina Turner you'll see nowhere else right. uh, 
including footage of her at home cooking for her kids, Ike recording in the studio, them traveling around America in dressing rooms and airplanes, uh, and some incredible live footage, um, including the song I've Been Loving You Too Long, where Tina literally gives head to the microphone, oh, yeah. uh, which they never played on TV <laughs> right. back then. You know? and, uh, <laughs> I, I think my video is probably one of the only places you can see that song come to life. Right. Um, and then there's the New York Dolls videos, uh, all dolled up and uh, looking fine on television. Um, so uh, those are out now and available on the internet. That's great, and thank you for coming in. Really appreciate this. Like, and I do have a Facebook page, but that's mostly for announcements and things like are that. Are you on Twitter or anything uh, like that? Sometimes, again, mostly for announcements. I don't put my daily life, and I don't you know share what I'm having for lunch or what I do right. with my grandchildren. Right. Or, Not taking pictures of... You know, uh, uh, of uh, uh, food for the soul that you went to today. <laughs> yeah. I did take a picture, but that's for myself. That right, was right. the internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I do have a private life. Yeah. You know, and I think they try to keep some of that private. I mean, man, that's the good stuff. Many thanks to Bob for taking the time to chat with us here on Load In, Load Out, a tour story podcast produced by me, Bill Fortenberry. Our hosts are Ryan Lewis and Cash Carter. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. See you next week. Hooray!